radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda, founder of Cinetopia and your host, co-producer of this show. I'm also here with my co-producer, Jim, uh, managing editor of Take One Magazine. Jim, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, you know, as with all the shows we've done this year, COVID notwithstanding is the asterisk here. But yeah, 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 I'm doing good. Yeah. And we're recording this about a week before this comes out. So uh, yeah, who knows what's what's going to lie ahead. But anyway, uh, so I'm also here with a uh, returning, um, well, returning for the second time. And my colleague and co-director of Cinescapes, Isabel Salomon. Um, Isabel, how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. I'm feeling very festive with the December sort of landscape, despite obviously the COVID situation right now. But aside from that, I'm feeling very good, very jolly. Good. <laughs> jolly is good. And um, in December. And we're also back with one of our regulars, Mark Nelson. How's it going? Yeah, not too badly. Um, I'm not a very festive person, so December is a bit of a grumpy month for me, uh, compounded by COVID stuff, I would say. So, yeah, feeling yeah, just, just better than miserable. Well, we always have to have one Grinch in the mix. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, we together, Isabel and Mark um, have been working with uh, with with me on a project called Framing Japan. So Cenotopia Doc was back by the time this is um, what by the time this airs, uh, we will have already done all of our screenings. But um, Mark was one of our uh experts on um, or you did a Q&A with um, one of the filmmakers, right? Yeah, I did an interview with uh, Kazuo Hara, which screened after a screening of Extreme Private Eros, Love Song 1974, which uh, which is um, my a friend of mine was doing the projection and uh, didn't know that she was going to be projecting it, and she just sort of took a photo of my face at Summer Hall screen was like, hello, what was going on here then? I was like, oh, right. <laughs> uh, so that was a nice surprise. Yeah, I actually think she was quite excited to see the film. It was one of her favorites, she said, because it was a surprise for her all around. Um, but Isabel has been producing that with me as well. So Isabel, how, how have you enjoyed uh, this, this documentary project yourself? It's been um, very, very fun. And that particular film was really great to see. It was so comedic in parts, but also such a wonderful expression of Japanese culture and being a bit of a Japanophile myself, I um, have been getting a lot out of it. So looking forward to the next two this week ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, which would have already happened um, so when we air it, but also uh, we would have just finished uh, the apartment as well, um, hopefully, and uh, our, our, our rooftop events monthly at uh, Moxie. And well, thankfully, that will be all the film events that uh, we will have done. So I cannot promote any other film events for 2021, which is feels good because I will be going on a long hiatus for <laughs> at least a month, um, you know, and hopefully watching more films um, excited about that but let's talk about films that we can see in the cinemas hopefully and um, and throughout the course of your holiday season um, and those films we'll be reviewing on this show is come on come on which is directed by Mike Mills and is currently out in cinemas across the UK and the US and probably many other places the second film we'll be reviewing is The Hands of God, which is the latest film directed by Paolo Sorrentino. Uh, third film is Titan, 
Uh, that film has recently won the Palme d'Or, directed by Julie Julia Decono, and um, yeah, so it's out in um, UK cinemas on Boxing Day. Um, and our final film that we'll be reviewing, which will come out right at the beginning of the new year, um, is Boiling Point, directed by Philip Barantini. Um, to end this year and uh, one of our most um, normal things that we do, we kind of go through some of our favorite films that whether we reviewed them on, this, on the podcast or radio show or not, we'll be talking about those um, just to kind of see what we all thought was in our favorites. And then um, throwing this in because Simon gave us a little, well, I thought it was quite a little challenge. Uh, he was looking at um, a bunch of... Uh, terrible holiday films that come out on the BBC where I thought it would be interesting to ask everybody what their favorite and least favorite holiday film is. Um, and so I'm excited to hear what everyone has to bring to the table. So that's us for our final show of 2021 and uh, let's get through it. To visit planet Earth, you will have to be born as a human child. At first, you will have to learn to use your new body to move your arms and legs. You will learn to walk and run, to use your hands to make sounds and form words. There will be so much for you to learn and so much for you to feel. Sadness, joy, disappointment and wonder you will grow up travel and work over the years you will try to make sense of that happy sad full always shifting life you're in and when the time comes to return to your star it may be hard to say goodbye to that strangely Beautiful world. So the first film we're reviewing this month is Come On, Come On, directed by Mike Mills. And Mark, you'll tell us a little bit about this film, right? Um, so Come On, Come On, latest film by Mike Mills. Um, it stars Joaquin Phoenix as a guy called Johnny, who is given a bit of inopportune news when his sister has to deal with a sort of family mental health crisis. And uh, she's played by um, Gabby Hoffman. Her name is Viv. She goes off to Oakland to try and repair uh, sort of mental health crisis in her family and leaves her nine-year-old son, who's called Jesse, played by Woody Norman, um, in Johnny's company. And Johnny uh, has a few sort of unresolved cathexes and he has a sort of down-bearing personality. So, like sweet guy, but also just, you know, not quite, uh, not quite found a way to get away from being shut in with his feelings. And would you guess that they bond over a sort of road trip? Um, Jesse is a bit sort of exuberant and precocious, but also like quite emotionally testing at times. And the film becomes a kind of a way for them to forge an emotional bond, which will resolve some of those cathexes. Um, I wonder what we all think of the film. 
Well, I adored. I um, I am a huge fan of Mike Mills' work. So I loved Beginners. I loved 20th Century Women, and I thought this film was utterly beautiful. Um, the relationship between child and sort of man starved in perpetual adolescence I thought was really really lovely but mainly the cinematography the symphony of music on screen everything coming together it was just an absolute visual treat for me so on the face of it I probably shouldn't like this I mean I I, I, I the only way I'd say this is if I um you know hadn't seen Mike Mills other work in particular beginners and got a lot out of it but it you know, it's set up to be one of these heartwarming films that occasionally kind of rubs me up the wrong way. It didn't. It's an excellent film. Um, and I think in particular, the way that relationship develops uh, between Johnny and Jesse, the reason for it not setting off my um, schmaltz alarms is the fact that it really, it, it really just feels very real to me. Um, and just the the way that you can get insight from the way that um, kids, in particular Jesse, in the, in this case, see the world and the way they react to things, and you know how that makes you reassess your own understanding of the world. Um, there were and basically, I and I think I agree with you, Isabella. It looks superb. Um, I think we've commented about the cinematography of Robbie Ryan on this show before across numerous films um, and I think it's pretty plain to see up there but in all honesty I actually think I, I kind of love the script here and um, you know I think that's the for me the strongest element because that would have been the bit that would be the easiest to tip over into something that felt maybe a little bit more trite um, but it really doesn't and I got a lot out of this so I, I, I find it hard to fault many aspects of it but I I think a lot, a lot of it comes from the script and the way that that relationship is conceived and then presented, and I got a lot out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll just say the same about the cinematography. I really do love Robbie Ryan's work. I think we've, we've talked a lot about it. Obviously, our friend and colleague was in a Robbie Ryan, well, something that was, you know, filmed by Robbie Ryan, Blue Christmas, which, you know, which was part of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, Marriage Story. I, I love of. Robbie Ryan film that shows both LA and New York and I think this one in black and white um, did something that really impressed me um, the shots were absolutely all like so such beautiful pictures I mean I I love black and white films about New York and this film made me so nostalgic for New York and really captured it in such a such a nice way and also in a very heartwarming way so you know where I thought marriage story was a lot more cold I think this was this was really a, a really wonderful uh, you know story about a family. I really liked Beginners. I really liked 20th Century Women. I got a lot out of this. I wouldn't say that I got as much out of it probably as you did, Isabel. I think um, you know I thought it was tender and I enjoyed it. Um, uh, and it was a lovely evening, and I, I would watch it again for sure. Um, I, I think I also do really like you know the. I think perhaps it's the combination of this documentary kind of uh, radio thing that I, I, you know, having done a lot of interviews in my life, I liked that. I liked those moments, but I think in some ways I didn't, yeah, I, 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 I didn't, you know, I, I just felt that was a little staged in some capacity in some way. I don't know. I, I just felt, I felt a little, 
um, yeah, it was it was interesting, but it wasn't it wasn't something that completely resonated with me in some in some capacity. So that that's my only my only comment. Yeah, I have some reservations about the documentary stuff too because they appear to me like glancing in at situations beyond Mike Mills' own ken, and that that's sort of mirrored in the way that he deals with his his own characters. There are moments where memories sort of flash up on the scene for a few seconds at a time, and it's a kind of refusal to look at those moments for what they are for the characters. They're just suggestions as to an emotional conflict that's unresolved or um, the cause of some ambivalent familial feeling. And there's a similar thing that happens in those interviews, which is they're there for a second. Sometimes the subjects are on screen. Sometimes they're just in voiceover. And what they say, you know, they're asked, it's uh, interviews with children in which they're, or teenagers, where they're asked, you know, what are your hopes for the future? What do you think the future is going to be like? And they give very sincere answers, which... I would have maybe liked more of them. Maybe there, maybe there's there's more to say in those scenes, um, and I also feel like, um, although the I think the performances are excellent, I feel like um, Wayne Norman and Orkin Phoenix have really good relationship as scene partners to each other because it would be one version of the film to say that Joaquin Phoenix is really generous towards his scene partner and kind of opens up some space to let the the child act, but it's actually way more interesting when you see how Woody Norman keeps him. At an arm's length, like you know, shows him affection, but also withholds it strategically. Um, sort of wants to be protected, but also wants to sort of escape in a way. And I think the way that Norman manages those things as a child actor in the presence of a really intimidating screen presence, like Joaquin Phoenix, who himself has given some room to kind of be soft on the screen in a way, um, they're really really impressive together. But um, I do feel like the overriding argument of the film or like the, the point to at which it arrives in the end is kind of a little bit too emotionally easy especially when there are larger and I think way more interesting and moving conversations that it is beginning to have and then sort of falls away from um, the emotional note that I think it strikes is it's okay not to be okay which these two characters desperately need to hear but there's a far more moving and interesting film about memory and its connection to language which it starts going to and then sort of walks away from. But I find that quite interesting because I feel as if I think I take a very different take in that what I loved about Jesse's performance is it's meant to be this acutely emotionally developed young child who is still a kid. And so it's showing him in the context of speaking around these other children who were being interviewed and these other children don't have that heightened emotional development purely because even if they've been through quite rough situations, they haven't been through them to the same level as Jesse has, or maybe they don't have his IQ. But then we're also bringing it back because he is still a child. So I kind of liked the whole, we're not going to develop that because we're going to put you in a child's box still, even though we're letting you explore being a bigger child. And I thought that was the whole thing of, let's say you're not going to remember things long term in your memory because you are still a child. So it just kept coming back to that child aspect of you aren't an adult yet, no matter how acutely developed your emotional compass is. And I just quite enjoyed that context in the interviews as well and how it you know, bounced off that. And that's why I liked how childish some of those interviews were, because it was really a reference to how Jesse was and then how Johnny was and how they in, like evolved in a relationship together. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that like some of the, the those child interview moments, I mean, parts of it I just, I loved because they felt raw in some capacity 
and also brought you sort of a glimpse of what it was to live in New Orleans or what it was to live in New York or what it was to live in, you know, in these different locations around around um, the US. But I think for me, it felt like a frame upon which the story was in. And that's what I mean by like staged, because they weren't obviously staged. It was like with beginners, he had these pictures because there was this graphic design kind of narration that sort of framed the film. And this is the way that he used that to get into the story of this, you know, this family. And I thought that it just, you know, it worked, but it was, it just felt like it had, it was there for that reason. And I guess that's what I didn't like about it. So a couple of things that came up there. I think the, um, the interview segments, I think in contrast to um, Mark and Amanda, I, I, I like them. Now, I, I think part of the reason I liked it is, yes, they are quite narrow windows into the particular people that are speaking or what it is they're speaking about, but I kind of liked the way that it broadened up the the ideas and the thoughts that are being presented in the film beyond this very specific relationship between uncle and nephew. Now, don't get me wrong, of course, the idea is that, you know, you should be able to relate to that and it has a, some, that relationship has some sort of broad resonance, but I like the idea of bringing in um, other experiences, however um, fleeting. The one thing, the one thing I want to pick up on is with Mark's comment about, you know, the film's presentation of memory and how there's you know an interesting film in there. I'm I'm going to agree with that, and the reason I say that is there is one conversation that happens in the film which is around about memory and how will I remember you know in relation to um, Woody being a child. How will I remember this and will I remember this? And I there was something about that conversation that really hit me pretty hard. It was the part of it that I felt like I related the most strongly too and I would have liked a little maybe a little bit more around that um you know because the central idea of is okay not to be okay and particularly when you put that in with the sort of like the little vignettes around his his father played by Scoop McNary um I I I liked it and that's the main I think probably the main thrust of the film but I think there were bits it could have done gone a bit deeper there or maybe lingered on a bit more so there are interesting hints of other bits that i would have liked to have seen a bit more of um i think i'm willing to let it slide just because i kind of engaged so much with that central relationship and the ideas that it did um go more into but i but but i i I take those points i think there is something there which is which i would like to have seen more of but i can i can live without doing so and i sometimes feel like the in, in some of the parts, in some parts of the film, rather, it feels like the documentary segments, the segments of the interviews, are a kind of appeal to universality, from, uh, or to contrast with the specific story being told. Like, well, here's this one family story that we're going to do in detail, but here are all of these others, which then points to the universality of the specific story. And I tend to find appeals towards universality just really flattening. And that's what that the emotional mechanics of that um, so somewhat flatten the you know grander, more subtle, more refined stuff that comes in, and I would say the middle parts of the film. Um, I do what I will compliment the film on is the way it kind of uses play as as a way to 
release feeling, um, especially Jesse. Jesse has this incredible setup just before bed where he pretends to be an orphan. And it's really like emotionally complex game that he plays with his mother and then with Johnny. And it appears to be a way to like, you know, demonstrate his own wounds in a subtle way and in a way that sort of brings adults out of themselves and also adults out of their comfort zones because Johnny's just absolutely uncomfortable with the whole setup. He's like, this this is incredibly strange and it is incredibly strange. But uh, Johnny has a similar thing where he, at the end of the day, just records everything that he has said, all of like a kind of audio diary that he keeps um, in very soft tones. He kind of sort of repeats everything with the, a note of regret in it. Of, aware of how things could have been different and aware of what he could have said at that moment, aware of how he played things but then wishes that he had played things. And both of those feel like both Jesse's play and Johnny's sort of audio tapes, they feel like acts of self-disclosure which become part of a conversation which is in some effect therapeutic. Um, and I think the movie has a kind of therapeutic effect. I just feel like the parts aren't always speaking to each other in quite the way that Mills is intending them to. That's um, that's everything I enjoyed about it. Like I loved the mm -hmm. fact that um, it's showing sometimes you go through things as a kid that you really shouldn't be going through and you have to deal with all of this baggage and you don't completely understand it, but you do understand it and you need these coping mechanisms. and. I just really enjoyed how he depicted that on on screen and especially even the Saturday I'm allowed to be loud and you know different sort of elements of that nature and the yeah the orphan play it's like that's very inappropriate but also that makes sense because this is you trying to expose I'm struggling but I'm just going to kind of like palm it off as a joke and know that I'm in a make believe world so yeah, I thought I, I liked that a lot. And I know you're saying that you liked it too, but yeah, I, I thought that was a really, really cool sort of addition to the script. Yeah. And I'd also like to add how much, because I, I'm a huge Gabby Hoffman fan in general, and I thought her role as a supporting character, but also this idea, you were talking about memory, this idea of the mother, and obviously that's a clear moment if, you know, the loss of their mother and then, you know, the loss of you know, uh, well, the, the mother being away and that hence this relationship being built, um, I thought was such an interesting theme and also a really important, uh, yeah, I just thought Gabby Hoffman's character was really interesting in this. And so I really, I really enjoyed it. And I think those were parts and some bits where I, I was more emotional um, to, to watch that. So, so I, li I liked that as well. I think overall, I, this was a great film, a really good film. I think it's just that I have seen other work that kind of blew me away with you know Mike Mills's stuff before that I just just had a, an emotional connection to maybe because they were around the themes of love or just I just like Christopher Plummer's character and um, you know in Beginners that I perhaps just didn't feel the same with this one as I did the other ones. I mean, also recently on the show, we've actually reviewed something that I, I don't know. It felt very similar to in uh, Celine Shiama's last film deals with a lot of um, similar stuff. I mean, admittedly, in a very different way, um, but to me, that it, I, I felt like that had a little bit more impact on me. And that's not that, that's not to downplay this in any way. Like I, I, I did enjoy this a lot as a film. I think it does. I, I think it does what it sets out to very effectively. But it's just it's interesting. I just find it interesting when we do this, and like these these things seem to come in in waves. And I just feel like that 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 really felt like kind of a 
just a sister piece to it. And for my money, it it it, it does a lot of similar stuff, but perhaps does it a little bit more subtly. You know, like like Mark, like Mark is on point with the the idea that those interview segments are an appeal to universality. Now, I was okay with them, but for instance. Shiama's film doesn't do that, and it still manages to achieve that, you know. So, like, I think that, that that's the counterpoint. It's not to say that it is, you know, I, like, I don't, like, I don't want to sound like an absolute grump here. It's a case of like, it, it's a very good film. I, I think just occasionally when it's this emotional material, and it's anchored by, you know, a very good child actor performance. I think sometimes hyperbole can start to creep in um you know it's a very good film and i think there's a there's a lot to commend it but you know it, it's also interesting to look at other things that have done similar things and just see that contrast and approach really i would really recommend especially to people who like the film um to read um actually just to anybody um richard Brody's review in the new yorker is um it's one of the most favorable reviews i've seen for it he basically thinks it's wonderful but he has a couple of paragraphs where he delves into the specifics of the structure, which I haven't seen anybody do, the way that it has this sort of grand architecture of flashbacks, and he is the most subtle reading of it. And I, I won't go into it because I'll let people discover it, but it's, it's a wonderful reading of the film, even if I'm not as positive on it as he is. Um, I'll also say that it's, um, Come On, Come On feels to me in the same breath as films that a friend of mine refers to as um, the everybody trying their very best genre. And I'm like, yeah, that that's it. So like, films like Leave No Trace, um, where no one is in a you know, no one is at moral fault, uh, but there are irreconcilable things that are just a matter of life that nobody can escape from. And where I also think Come On, Come On is useful is as a movie, which doesn't fall to the illusion that childhood is some happy haven and that childhood is actually this very sad, lonely, incomprehensible place for lots of children. So a film like The Long Day Closes, I was thinking of a little bit while watching it, not that it's in Long Day Closes' League, because it's a wonderful movie, but um, it has a similar view of childhood as this just lonely place that's kind of insufferable for, for many people. I was I was just gonna say I'm surprised Richard Brody yeah I'm I'm not read in a few years a film that he really likes so that was oh. I'll have to definitely read it because it's usually um, some yeah but interesting no um, but yeah no um, so come on come on is playing in UK theaters right now we largely think this is not only a, a gorgeous film but a film you should see and um, and, and uh, let us know what you think. So the second film we're reviewing today is The Hand of God, latest film uh, directed by Paolo Sorrentino. Uh, it came out on Netflix on the 15th of December, so you can check it out there. Um, Jim, tell us about this film. So this is a... I mean, basically, it's an autobiographical film. Uh, I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. I mean, I, I, I you know, it's abstracted away, uh, you know, slightly, and in the way that you probably would expect for a Paolo Sorrentino film. But it's set in nineteen eighties uh, Naples, and of course, Paolo Sorrentino himself uh, was born in Naples. Um, and in particular, the thing that's hanging over the film is kind of a, you know, framing. Not a framing device, but the hand of God, and of course anybody who knows anything about football will immediately go to Diego Maradona with that. 
Um, and it is kind of this thing which is hanging over the film is is Maradona coming to Naples. And basically that's kind of a background strand that's kind of like just kind of adding a bit of colour to what is essentially the story of um, a slightly awkward Italian teenager, um, Fabietto is all his uh, sort of family call him, which is obviously a, you know, a, a cipher for Sontino himself. And basically it follows his experiences um, with his family and how he reacts to his place in Naples at the time and the status of the city and how it's seen, but also his own personal experiences with his family in particular. Uh, the film opens with his aunt basically experiencing this meeting with uh, San Gennaro, the patron saint of Naples, and, you know, a, an incident happens. I'll leave it for folk to watch the film. But then stuff that falls out of that and then interactions with his family and then later on how he deals with um, kind of tragedy within his life and how he reacts to that and how he looks to express it or indeed not express it um, and how he relates to them. So I think I'll go with Isabel because you've, you've also seen this. How did you... How do you find it? It's definitely, for my money, it, it, you know, it, a lot has been written about it being his most personal film, and I think that's pretty clear, really, from the setup. Well, I mean, it might come as a surprise, but I did not like this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, I, well, I have two main points to say. Is Philippi, is Filippo? Filippo, that's the lead boy's name, I think. Um, is he the Italian Chal Chalamet? because I think he looks just like Timothée Chalamet. I think he is sort of embodying that sort of um, aspect. But mainly, I don't like how Sorrentino depicts women in this film at all. I find it a very aggressive male glance. And yes, I'll give him a little bit of that on account of the fact that, you know, the lead character is meant to be coming of age. Um, but he's obsessed with breasts. There's a lot of breasts in this film that don't seem to be necessarily there. Um, and yeah, I don't enjoy the way that he's sort of um, actually showing women. But aside from that, I thought the film itself is quite beautiful. So um, he knows how to frame things. I always love how Sorrentino does sort of a big scoping shot and then sort of condenses things in. So obviously it's Italy, it's Naples. You do feel like you're on the streets of Naples in the time. But the plot I found a little bit convoluted and yeah, I didn't enjoy the awkwardness maybe because I wasn't a teenage boy and yeah, that's, that's about what I have to say on that. I think um, the, the, the comment about how you present it, I think that's fair. It's fair enough. I think um, the, the one thing I will say, and this is maybe where, what I will say about it, I, in contrast, I enjoyed the film. What I will say is for me, I perhaps found it his most particular and least interesting film. Now, the reason I say this is, obviously, it's very... This is an experience which is very personal to him. So I found it maybe a lot easier to relate to and occasionally emotionally engage with um, than his other work that I've seen, which is a bit more standoffish for me. Um, but... I think there's there's a lot of things here where I think unless you've got some some 
local knowledge, it will be a bit lost on you. In particular, the opening of the film deals with his aunt, who is kind of um, objectified a bit in some ways later. I'll come back, but I'll, but I'll come back to that because I think that's a, a a separate aspect we can talk about. What I will say is the opening. You know, she has this meeting with San Gennaro, and then she goes on to meet um, the little monk. Now, I had no idea about the little monk, and it is supposedly like a local. A local legend from Naples, and there's a very interesting thing that happens with that um, figure, let's say, rather than character, late, later in the film, which I think adds an interesting angle to it. I'm not sure that it requires this level of detailing to tell that story. I thought it looked incredible, I thought the lead performance was extremely effective, um, I got a lot out of this. I do think it is his least interesting work that I've seen. And I, unfortunately, that sounds like a very harsh thing to say because it's the most personal piece of work. It's very obviously heavily autobiographical. The only thing I would say is before you get to the point um, where Fabietto's outlook on life changes as a result of events, and then later in the film when he starts to maybe not move past it, but he's at a different kind of stage. There is a self-indulgence there. Um, on the presentation of women thing, and I think the key, that, would I be right in saying that the key figure for this is, I mean, there's many, but I think the recurring one is probably the ant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The only thing I would say, that there is a certain amount of sympathy with that character. And this is what makes the presentation a little bit Odd, and maybe this is where the film's a little bit more uneven because the ant, well, the ant is presented as having, um, you know, some mental health issues that she needs to deal with. This is how we open the film. It comes up again later in the film, and it's kind of a strand that pops up time and time again. But despite this kind of teenage infatuation with her, she is actually the character that he seems to relate to um, the best. In particular, there's one scene towards. I think as we get towards the end, uh, maybe about the start of the last third of the film or so, it's quite a way through where that really, to me, is made um, really pretty explicit. And in that way, this idea of, you know, we've already spoken about one film where it's, you know, like children trying to understand the world. This is a little bit like um, a teenager who has reacted to tragedy trying to understand things and finding somebody to relate to. So I don't think it's entirely... I don't think it's an entirely exploitative presentation, but I do think it—it's it, an odd one. It's uneven. I will—I—I'll go with that from my perspective. But you know, obviously, this—obviously, the, the issue you're talking about goes beyond that, that one particular character into other areas, and I think that's a fair enough criticism. Okay, so I need to jump in on a couple of things. So I adored the beginning part of this film. I thought that that whole interaction with the monk and everything, I thought that was really interesting. It was being set up very, very well. My main comment on the issue is I don't think he knows how to present women. I find that they're a little bit two-dimensional, and I don't think... I think that where he succeeds in every other piece of work that he's done, which is what I think The Great Beauty is really good, and I think The Young Pope is also super interesting and has these levels of nuances. And I think, to a degree, the male characters in this have that, aside from, like, the awkward element. But I just don't think that he gets that level with women. And 
I do think that that beginning monk scene is really fascinating, and I think that the whole how that lends into it is an interesting sort of capping off on that towards the end. But I just find these middle scenes quite gratuitous, and I don't think there's a need for them. Is is there an issue of perspective here, though? Because I because the the one character where I would definitely disagree would be is the character of the mother. Mm-hmm. So it, I I wouldn't say that it's an issue across the board. So how much are we? How much is it a problem with Sorrentino, and how much is it a problem with the character that Sorrentino is inhabiting in the film? I think it's I think it's with him full stop. I don't think the mother's that well fleshed out. I think she lacks so much compared to the male characters. I just think that she's quite um, an easy character to define. So she's not given as much screen time. She doesn't need to have that. And she maybe is a little bit of a better actress. I don't really want to say that, but because I'm not sure. I haven't seen um, the aunt that much in other works. But, yeah, I don't know. That was just what I was taking from it. I was enjoying parts of it. I understood it's coming from this adolescent lens. I think maybe they could have just cut out a big chunk of it and still given a much better story and given a much um, more rounded story as opposed to this sort of middle ground, which just... Felt a bit claggy. The other thing is with it being not a biographical film, like there's only so much you can separate that character's viewpoint from the director itself, right? So I am playing devil's advocate here to an extent. But I think in terms of like material to lose from the film, I think there is stuff there. You know, there's a lot of stuff around um, there's a lot of stuff around the family interactions at the start, which also have these same issues that you've already spoken about. And I think it could probably it could probably lose some of that stuff and it wouldn't lose anything for me from some of the ideas in the film about, you know, this... They, 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 I don't think the coming-of-age aspects of the film, which is really meant to be the main thrust of it. You, you know, I mean, like, they're parallel, like, I mean, they're parallels all the way through this. Like, like, there's a very small role for somebody playing Antonio Capuano, whose film was Sorrentino's first writing um on a feature film so like it, it, it's very obvious like you know that the autobiographical elements and the idea is like how this character has reacted to events in his life and that are happening in the city of naples right and also with these local figures being part of the opening and closing of the film then that is obviously meant to inform, you know, it's equally part of kind of like the internal thing with the family and the external influences of growing up in Italy at that that time in history. I think a lot of the other aspects that you've spoken about and have an issue with, I actually think some of those could be lost and it wouldn't dilute the impact of that. So I, I've, I, I enjoyed this film a lot more, but I do think it's his least interesting work for me. And I think the criticisms you made of it are... Are, are fair enough. I think that I think there I think there's a slightly better film that could be in there. Um, I would still say to watch it, but yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I do think there's a slightly better film there. All I'd say is Sorrentino, go speak with a few more women, tighten up your film. <laughs> okay, so the Hand of God um, is on Netflix, and uh, yeah, check it out.
So the next film we're going to review is uh, the film Titan. Uh, this film has won the Palme d'Or of Cannes this year. It's coming out on Boxing Day in the UK. It's already out, I believe, in October. It was already out in October in the US. Um, directed by uh, Julia Ducano. Um, and it's, I believe, the second film to win a Palme d'Or by a female director. The film is, um, I, I yeah, the film is an interesting, I'm, I'll be quite literal to describe what happens in this film. The main character is uh, Alexia, and as a young child got in the ca a car accident, uh, which had a titanium plate put in her skull, which I guess starts a long fascination with the love of cars. Um, eventually we realize that she's now a neurotic dancer and um, also has a predilection of killing people she comes in contact with. Uh, with her particular, her metal hairpin. We also um, then realize that she uh, has had a sexual encounter with uh, a Cadillac, which then impregnates uh, the main, yeah, Alexia, and um, hence the story continues as she runs from the law and goes and meets, uh, uh, well, ends up trying to play a gentleman um, named uh, Adrian, who is the a, a missing person, and then the second part of the film is around this relationship with the father of Adrian, and um, who is a, a fireman, and uh, Alexia, and uh, in this kind of weird world of pompiers in the south of France. I hope I explained that. Okay, um, very curious what. Uh, people think about this film um i don't envy you trying to summarize this um <laughs> you know i i i do think this is the sort of film where some of the ideas that i think are floating around in it and the imagery that is put up on screen it kind of defies you know a sort of brochure friendly synopsis you know um i don't envy programmers trying to find like you know 50 words to describe this film um you know, for unsuspecting audiences. So, for me, I I really liked this. I really liked um, Durkino's, um previous film, Raw. That was one of my favourite films of that year. And I honestly think between those two films, you know, there's a very strong sort of body horror element to this, as I think will probably be apparent from, you know, from trailers and that synopsis and things. I... I honestly don't think there is a filmmaker working right now who manages to elicit spontaneous responses from me better than her. Um, and there are many moments like that in this film. I think on a surface level, it does all that very effectively. I think there's a lot else going on. Some things I think it does extremely well. There are other things which, for my money... And this is not to say they're dealing with... Um, similar things, although there is a bit of overlap on that Venn diagram. I think there there's a cohesiveness of ideas that I found more of in Raw, I would say, um, her previous film, but there's a lot going on and I got a lot out of it on both. I got a lot out of it on the surface level and it is also a film that I've been thinking about a lot since I saw it. I also really, really liked Raw. Um, I also adore horror. I love this exact kind of horror, but I did not like this film, which really disappointed me and surprised me because I was expecting to fully love it. So what I did enjoy was um, the use of music. Like I thought that was really, really brilliant. I thought most of the visuals were really cool. Um, 
I found the plot line a little bit striving, to be honest. Um, I thought that it was trying so hard to shock and it seemed unnecessary in parts. Like you didn't need to go in certain directions. You could have just been a little bit more demure and held back a little bit and it still would have been perfect. Like if you just had graphic sort of imagery, but with a bit less like intense like plot line, I suppose, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Um, I thought the first half was much better than the second half. So the minute that sort of we turned into her having this weird nuanced relationship with that fireman, then I was like, okay, this plot line has just disintegrated into nothing. But anyway, what would you have to say, Mark? Yeah, so I like Raw as well. And so I was excited for this. But I will say in the film's favour, because I, I didn't get on with it, but I will say in the film's favour that if, um, if Titan worked for everybody, if it worked for every viewer, it would be doing something wrong. The, the, the way the film is amassed is just that it has to alienate half the audience, but it will win over the other part of the audience in spades. So I kind of appreciate, and I appreciate that that's the design. And I appreciate that there are filmmakers who aren't being kowtowed by the, you know, the requirements of certain distributors and certain streaming services and certain funding bodies, etc just to like hem themselves in, hem the ideas in. I'm glad that there's a film that is this unconstrained and kind of wild and, um, you know, willing and desiring to go in any which direction it pleases. I'm kind of happy that it exists. I don't find the experience a satisfying one at all. Um, and it's because I think it all boils down to, like it literally all boils down to the experience of the film. The ideas are kind of a crash and they're sort of picked up, developed a bit, thrown away, discarded. Um, and I think the idea of um, some of the negative criticism that this is, the film has received is for, uh, you know, for incoherence or kind of uh, messiness. I just don't think those are criteria of value anymore because we don't live in ideologically coherent times. Why would any of the artworks that we engage in in the present be coherent? Like it's just, it's nonsense to criticize it on those terms. Where I will say that I think it deserves criticism is for uh, studiously setting up a bunch of dichotomies which I think it thinks is um, or are being sort of melded or synthesized and I don't think they're being synthesized at all I think they're just being restated um, so dichotomies between masculine and feminine um, between human and inhuman stranger child and in terms of imagery things like fire and metal I think that the film wants to sort of synthesize them and create something new and think about transformation and how bodies are transformed but ultimately ends up just reinscribing exactly the differences that is amassed across the film's running time. See, I the, this the, that's really interesting. Everyone's take. I think this is a film that I would enjoy. I would have enjoyed if I could have actually watched it. Um, it's just a film that I can't. Like I didn't see raw, but I literally half of the time was not able to watch because it was so sensory, and there was moments. I think it was just the first shower scene about 10 minutes in it was so intense in terms of like just the the I think you mentioned the bodily sort of like physicality of the way that um things are represented it was it was just too hard for me to watch um but as a film that um yeah it's just not it's not something I can it did interest me and I think that in in the same way that you're mentioning Mark that uh this film you know is if it, it didn't feel incoherent it just felt yeah it, it felt like a, a film i was interested to to learn more about the story to learn more about it i was i was very intrigued but i just 
wasn't able to take um I mean I can I can watch horror films I just I felt like this it was just it was a sensory overload that had me looking away too many times for me to actually watch it again so we were the complete reverse then Amanda so I really liked all the visuals and I thought all the visuals were its absolute highlight and that's what I liked about Raw because I thought that then the plot also delivered in Raw whereas in this I just found the plot lacking and I wanted to spend more time with the child I wanted to spend more time with the journey of how the child got to where she became and then moving forward but we just kind of took this big leap and we'd set up this amazing sort of situation and then we just left it. And I found that quite, quite disappointing. And I just wanted more in that beginning stage. I, I think to an extent, part of the much smaller reservations I have with the film, obviously, but they all stem from the same place, really. And you know, like Mark, Mark has set out a lot of the things that the film sets up. I think the main thing for me is it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't really grab onto any of them for me, um, you know. Whereas I, I feel like Raw, the through line there in terms of, you know, um, reclaiming perceptions of your body and power and how you, how you, you know, impose yourself on situations with it or can be imposed upon and all this sort of thing. The ideas there were a lot more focused. It's not even necessarily that were coherent because there was a lot of uh, other stuff floating around in that film, but I feel like this this one, particularly in the second half, and this is where I think I have a similar experience to, to Isabel in the sense that I think as the film goes on, I wasn't any less engaged with the film really but i think i got less out of it because i think a lot of those ideas they, they, they are they're kind of firing all over the place um and whilst i don't think that's necessarily something the film fails in because to a certain extent i think it's it, it's really set up to be that way i do find it a slightly less thematically satisfying film as a result um I think I got enough out of it on a superficial um, sort of sensory level that Amanda has spoken about to really be engaged with it. I mean, honestly, there are so many points in this film where really, I, I, I'm not somebody who has massive amounts of spontaneous reactions in films, but this really did manage it. Um, I also, one thing I will say is that compared to, compared to Raw, or certainly my memory of Raw, there are actually early on in the film, there are some pretty pitch black comedic moments that I actually got quite a, quite a lot and I, I it's not often um I haven't seen I mean you know I'll say a lot of films do this but I haven't necessarily seen it in this context with the sort of ideas that we've spoken about f floating around in this film um that juxtaposition and that's something that I enjoyed a lot so I got a lot out of this film I don't think it hangs together quite as well as her previous feature I don't think it's necessarily meant to hang together as well as her previous feature but it does make it for me a slightly less satisfying experience as a result which isn't you know which isn't to say do say I, I do think there's a lot in this film and it's on, on a lot of levels is absolutely superb but it's just it doesn't quite come together as well as it could have for me well, I think what you just brought up there is is kind of why I'm intrigued by it. Um, although, again, just it's it's I'm as as sensitive to these kinds of sensory overloads that I can't sustain watching them. 
but it's this black humor mixed with horror mixed with you know and in, you know intense colors and you know and drama and also in in the second half which I, I i guess i sort of disagree with you too because i think the idea at least i even read is that it was about love in some capacity and you know i mean it's unable to take somebody at the very first part of this which was felt like a black humor i actually kind of had a little pathos for both those characters and was interested in the storyline between vincent and Alexia. I mean, that that's when I actually started to pay a little bit more attention than in the beginning, which I which was intriguing in its in its in the fact that it was humor and it was pretty and it was intense. But, I, you know, it was just one one murder after another that was, you know, very, very hard for me to watch where I started. I feel like I, I picked something out at, by the second half. That humor that you're talking about, though, really muddies the waters of the second half for me, because the second half all depends, and the ending all depends upon this invocation of tenderness that I just don't feel has a clear tonal root in the second half of the film at all, because you have all of this material about Vincent Landon's character um, and the incredibly gay firemen who are in his unit, um, which is very, very funny. The scenes of them dancing in neon light, topless, etc., are very, very funny and sort of engaged. I think the whole film's engaged in a certain, um, uh, uh, certainly incorporates a large amount of kink in it. Um, but this just ends up at the ending and you have to accept this great invocation of tenderness or the whole film will fall, um, especially in the final scene. And I feel like it does fall. You see, I'm good. I, 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 I'll, I accept the point about the, the the humor muddying the waters. I think, right? Because I, it, there's a couple of scenes early on where I think about that tone and compare it towards the end of the film, and it does feel like a different film. Um, you know, so in that sense, okay, there are, to me, there are a couple of callbacks in the later part of the film, which I think set up the the tenderness you're speaking about. So for me, I did... But what I will say is I have seen this film twice and I think I only really... A couple of these moments I'm talking about, I only really saw them on the second viewing. So I'm not sure how well the film communicates that. Um, for me, it is there, it is there though. Um, so I, I will disagree slightly there. But and as a result, I think I was more willing to make that leap at the end of the film than I was the first time I saw it, where I think I was a little bit, to be honest, I think I was caught up in exactly what Amanda's spoken about. I think, you know, from the first viewing of the film, the thing that I remember, without giving, you know, necessarily the specific moment away, but everybody here or who has seen the film will appreciate, is the crunching of bone, right? That's basically the, the, the image and the sound which is in which is locked in my brain from that first viewing. I would say I got different things on second viewing. Now, whether, whether we see that as a shortcoming of the film in terms of one aspect dominating the other when it's clearly concerned with the other one, that's up for discussion. Um, I, think, I think both are there. The question is just whether that balance is correct. One thing that I would like to add is, despite all my reservations with the film, I did, by the end, I want to see a sequel. I would quite like to see the journey of what happens at the end of that film. I would quite like to see that progress and see what 
actually could be done with that because I think if it moves back into the raw territory, it could be an utterly brilliant film. And look, I have no idea if they're going to make a sequel or not, but I would be quite interested in seeing a sequel. You mean you want to know what happens? I want to know what happens to with its. We can't leave that in. Come on, surely. Well, that's why I was. It's the final shot of the film. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah, I know, but like... <laughs> I did, I did absolutely love the physical transformation of the body and how we had to keep sort of like strapping the body and then obviously sort of like the weird fluids on the body. Like, I, I thought that was done very well, but that again is the strength. That's why I think it's more as if you've handed me a beautiful menu and you've shown me this incredible steak dinner and I've ordered it and then what's presented to me is disgusting and I, or just, you know, a little bit grey. And I'm like, okay, I'm disappointed. I was expecting something. You've delivered on visuals. You haven't delivered on substance. And that's just what I think about this film. Yeah, the, the, the textures for me are way more interesting than the film's design or the film's narrative because I feel like the there there is there's a peppering of provocations throughout it, particularly in the relationship between Vincent and his missing son, which I feel like um, have they're ju- are just there to needle a viewer um, a little bit more than the film was needling them already. And there is a narrative feint that I think is set up at the at the very beginning of the film, which is a kind of total cop out, um, which I won't I won't say because I again want people to discover it. Um, but yeah, the the point about chosen family and the point about the, the invocation of tenderness again, sort of where the film just crashes. Well, I mean, compared to Annette, though, I mean, that's one that goes. I think both of these have oh, these God. just very bizarre, bizarre storylines that you have to buy into that are just absolutely mad. And then I think this one just interests me more. I just have, I have was you, not have at you, all. Have you just proposed a cinematic crossover event we didn't know we needed? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's a double bill. Turn a net. Well, there's some similarities there. I see, but yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, I cannot. If I, if we did a double bill of this, I would not be able to watch this film, even though I preferred this one much more than a net for sure. Um, also, speaking of New York, New York critics, uh, the, yeah, the headline of the New York Times of this was review of Titan. Auto erotic, and I just thought that was quite funny. That's funny. Sorry. Yeah. I to be honest, I think the main thing for this is there's a lot going there's a lot going on in this film. I think the main thing that I would probably want to push back against is like when it gets presented to general audiences. I think there is a temptation to present it as the one where a woman f***s a car, and I think this is that's just such an absurdly like. I I mean okay, I mean it's factually true. But it, but it, it is happens. just such a reduction. Like, it does happen, but it's just it, it feels like such a reductionist sort of. This is weird take on it. When I think I think there's a lot going on in the film. Whether it, whether it successfully conveys everything it wants to, that that's a different discussion. And I think we've amply shown that it maybe it maybe doesn't do that. But I think I think yeah. I mean, I also yeah. remind this reminds me a little bit of Deerskin too, where we have this like very bizarre concept of 
love of inanimate objects um and you know but then this one takes it at least it, it like i think this goes back to what mark was saying at least it's attempting to try multiple things at once and you know whether or not it alienates half the audience mm -hmm. you know it, it it does have the power of us thinking about it and talking about it you know um and i'd like to i'd like to see more if i could stomach it <laughs> I will say as well that it has been, at least it was when it came out in the States, is that it was probably the critical writing event of the year. Whether folk were for or against or ambivalent about it, it produced an awful lot of good writing. So I am looking forward to seeing what people from the UK think of it, come up with it, because there is a lot of very strong writing about it being, if not a trans allegory, then at least sort of um, correspondent with those themes. And that's a very interesting angle that has appeared in a lot of American writing. So I'm looking forward to the UK release anyway. All right, so T10 is, uh, is the, our choice for Boxing Day. <laughs> well, <no. laughs> it's a one for the family. <laughs> yeah, have some, have some leftover friendly. turkey and then go, go see a woman <laughs> the car. Fun for the whole family. Turkey into ten. <laughs> Um, so check it out if you dare, um, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll head to the next one. Hello, everybody. Beautiful. Keep turning. Keep turning. Keep turning. We've got a good menu. We're pulled together. We'll be fine. Yes, yes. Get beef anywhere. I'll, I'll have it sorted by tonight. Let's move our arms. Yeah. Hey, you, that's yeah. not the menu. Come on. You, sort the beans out. Look how busy we are. Service on table 13. Andy, we're going down. Andy, 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 Andy. Hey, Andy. Good to see you, mate. Yeah, nice to see you. Critic, Sarah Southworth, as you know. Hello, Hello. Hi. I had no idea you were coming. I found you and you didn't get back. Okay, look, we've been reviewed on table four. I need you to switch on, yeah? Yes, yes. Mate, I'm not being funny not my What's this all about? You haven't returned a call to me in six weeks. This is about you taking two hundred thousand pounds. So the final film we're reviewing is Boiling Point, directed by Philip Barantini. It comes out on the 5th of January in the UK. And uh, Isabel, tell us about that film. Right. So this film is set in one of the busiest nights of the year at one of the hottest restaurants in London. It features Andy Jones, who is this dangerous sort of hot-headed chef who's balancing his personal and professional crises at a particular obviously as i've said very hectic night of service and all of a sudden he's presented with you know an old colleague during the evening who he has a very heated background with and then also a surprise from the health inspectors and everything sort of becomes you know everything starts to unravel all at once and we just follow that along in one giant continuous shot so that we get this really frenetic energy throughout the whole service and I'll throw it over to all of you to let me know what you think of it. Well, unlike, um, well, like Titan, I found this film actually quite anxiety 
Um, yeah, it just caused a lot of anxiety because it was, uh, yeah, basically how, if you've ever worked in the restaurant, you know, industry, how it is and, um, sort of showing, I guess, from a POV sort of perspective on the intent, you know, just, just the anxiety that goes on in, you know, in, in a restaurant, um, in, in that way, I, yeah, I, I, I sort of felt like it. It, it had its mission and it did it, you know? So, I mean, in, in that way it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a film that was kind of characterizing a night in a night in a restaurant and how, you know, there's just all these different kinds of little things that are going on, um, you know, behind the scenes. So that I liked. I think from the jump, the, the one take form of it doesn't work for the film at all. Um, there are moments where it just feels so precisely choreographed that it completely cancels out the fact that this is meant to be a frenetic, stressful evening. And it's just like, no, that camera's way too smooth. The movements from the discrete parts of the film, because they're essentially just narrative zones that are all kind of threatening to topple on one another. Um, there's the kitchen, there's the back kitchen, there's the alleyway, there's the restaurant floor, there's the bar, there's the back office, there's the toilet. And the camera just traipses either following a person or going strategically to that area so that it can catch the next person who's going to be important for the drama. Um, but it's it's too smooth and I could see points. There's, I, I think the term is um, contrasted exemplification where something is absent and you're thinking about it all the time. So there's there there are no edits throughout the, the sequence. And I was just thinking on edit, they would be perfect. Like it would cut to the kitchen at this moment. That would be That would be superb. Uh, but of course it doesn't do that and also it faints slightly as well because the the major benefit of having a one take sequence or one of you know a film in one take as it were is to show things in real time whereas this is condensed it's a whole evening that takes place in about 84 minutes or so so there is a bit of like um, temporal ellipsis happening throughout this and I think that sort of negates the purpose because you don't know what's you know what's going on in those different areas so you really don't get the the sense of um this as a sort of claustrophobic experience it feels it feels really disconnected and disorganized to me yeah i think um there's a lot of things i like about this film um you know i think a couple of the and the the key performances are probably um the two the two main chess played by stephen graham and vanette robinson i want to say yeah Finette Rodson. And I think in particular her performance is, is superb. But it sets up the film for me sets up this interesting thing about like how, how good is the film when its biggest showiest aspect is really the part of it that works the least well for me. And you know, it, it achieves that, that this single take achieves plenty of things. I'm just not really sure it achieves what the film needs it to. You know, it's um, you know, for instance, I think the the way that the characters move between spaces and then thus the camera, it gives a very good sense of space, and I think you understand that and the way that they relate to each other very well. And as a result, the way that the different kind of sets of characters, you know, front of house staff versus back, um, you know, the the actual chefs versus say the, the dishwashing staff and the you know the maitre d type figure and i i think all that works quite well and it does achieve that but the main thing is a lot of the human drama i think is very diluted by it in particular there's a couple of sidebars where 
the conceit of the camera following a person and then it kind of like hands off to someone else and it follows them it kind of removes a lot of things like there's one sequence in particular where I mean, basically, there is no tension, there is no conflict, there's nothing, because you followed this person, and it was like, well, we have to make it back to the restaurant somehow, so we know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, so, in a sense, the, 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 the hyper-choreographing of the camera and who it's following ends up doing the same to the drama and the people within it. Um, that isn't to say that the bits where it's not doing that and it does spend a bit of time when people don't work. I think there's a lot of bits that do, but there are a lot of segments where exactly what Mark has said, I think is entirely correct, where the performances in some segments are so good that you, you kind of want to see that conflict. You want to see an edit between them. You want to see reaction shots. You want to see the camera do something different to emphasize or highlight that. And this aesthetic choice really does hem it in. Um, and I think that's unfortunate, to be honest. Because as I say, there's a lot I like about this. I think it's a very good film. I got very engaged with it. I felt stress in the situation. But there, it's just, unfortunately, I really do think that one central choice has really held it back quite a bit. I really think this could have been superb. And it's just that one key choice has removed a lot of... It's removed a lot of degrees of freedom, I think, this film could have had um, without too much more effort. See, I don't, I don't dislike the continuous shot as much as I think all of um, the rest of you do. And I don't want to just repeat sort of what everyone else has been saying. I found it a bit so-so in certain parts. Um, what I didn't like about it was the fact that this is meant to be a lovely sort of glimpse at what it's like to be in a stressful kitchen. And there was a lot of standing around, which I thought was bizarre for the hardest night and the hottest night of the year. Like, there's no time for standing around in a kitchen. So I found that unrealistic to begin with. But I didn't like that it delved into predictable stereotypes. Unlike, you know, I wanted it to just, you know, some certain story points to just, you know, fizzle out like they do in life. Like, if this is meant to be a glimpse of life, it's like, Sometimes things don't ever reach, you know, boiling point effectively. It's just like boiling point can be something without being the predictable spoiler, which I don't want to reveal. So I I didn't like that it just gave itself away to something which seemed very easy. It would seem like an easy grab as opposed to, you know, actually following a different narrative. Well, I'm one to hate the one-shot gimmick, to be honest. So was it, is it 1917? Is that the film that was like, what, that, that came out? Yeah. So I, I do not like that, sh that gimmick at all. But for some reason, and, and also I, I think we talked about Palm Springs earlier this year and that there's this time loop gimmick and that kind of bothered me that there wasn't at least some sort of, oh, this has been done before, you know, or I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't like using that sort of gimmick whatsoever. So I agree with everyone on that. However, I can go away from that in the sense that it actually, as someone who experienced restaurant life, the, front, the, the fact that you're going in and out of like different areas and space and that it is very intense and kind of just very personal. It's very, P, it's very POV. It's very point of view. And you come into in and out of these sort of spaces. I think it actually kind of works um, to describe a night in you know in in a very busy restaurant, a very high like high intensity restaurant, 
and kind of like, I mean, I was just sort of thinking it's a little bit like in the loop too. Like, you know, for me, like there's this, this ridiculousness that it has to be that high intensity. And yet all of those things I do think feel really realistic and I won't give the spoiler away because I've been giving spoilers away all night. But, um, but that the final thing happened literally to me and why I would still have like nightmares about things like that. So I think there's, there, there is relevance to all of those stereotypes. If you, if you call them stereotypes, I just think they're like, they're, they're parts of how people feel about how people are trained in that kind of experience, what they get out of it, you know, how, how, how the, how those relationships can affect you in a high intense situation that frankly from, you know, doesn't need to be, but could have actually grave, grave implications at the end and, you know, and, and why, why, why that it happens that way. So gimmick didn't love, didn't from the moment that it, it came out, but didn't bother me as much as it would have hit in other films that I feel like we're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Um, I was just going to say that uh, we need to mention that the title is sort of borrowed from a series of documentaries about Gordon Ramsay, who is probably totemic of that sort of kind of um, blustering masculinity, um, which I think, and also I would say the um, Alistair Skye character played by Jason Fleming is very clearly a kind of uh, Ramsey stand in the fact that he doesn't look people in the eyes and constantly says the words amazing, amazing. Like it's, it's very obviously a, a portrait of him. Um, but I do find um, I like Graham's performance a lot when he's allowed to actually have some space to act and he's not just being trailed around, um, especially when he's interacting with his scene mm-hmm. partners. I find some of those moments are very, very good. For instance, when he and Carly, who's Vinette Robinson's character, are plating up a duck dish together. He, I mean, I just get a good sense of why they were partners in the first place, despite all this being yeah. incredibly stressful. Mm. Um, they kind of they know each other's rhythms. They know who's going to plate the sauce. They know who's going to try and place the duck on the you know the bed of um, garnish. They they know what they're going to do at the right times, and they're very accommodating scene partners for each other. But then that's that that's sort of a problem for a movie that's like eighty four minutes long, has a huge ensemble cast, and those 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 actors who are all individually really good don't get anything like it off screen time. Um, especially when you have a uh, you know a mercurial actor like Stephen Graham, who's really good at shifting between moods on, a, on an absolute hairpin turn, going from chummy, matey, a good pal, dependable to absolutely at the end of his wits, nervous, afraid, angry. Um, you you do need time to flesh out that portrayal, and I feel like it's just it's going on so many beats that just depend upon a kind of masculinity and its discontents narrative, but doesn't actually give any evidence for it in terms of the performances. Yeah, I did. Um, I did think it was very, very well acted. I'd agree with that completely. Like I think pretty much every single person in that cast was doing a great job with the material that they were given. It was just mainly, I mean, as you've said, the whole, wasted time of moving around in this continuous shot as opposed to just jumping back and forth which could have made it much more frantic um you would have got that much more oh my god and then he's just pounced on me if we didn't have the you know sort of like pounding of like a horse sort of moving along um but yeah Stephen graham he did a fantastic job in this role yeah i think for me that's what he cut did like did you know so amanda you've spoken about the you know that you're not a fan of this particular 
like structure for the film, this single take thing. And I think when we've reviewed stuff like this before, or certainly when we've spoken about it, I think generally I've actually been probably more amenable to it. In like 1917, you know, which is edited to look like it, you know, I mean, I was okay with it. I think it added to the film. I think whether it added as much as it could have in that instance, I don't know. I think the issue is here. It's not that it's something that has been chosen and add something albeit maybe not as much and maybe you know the level of dedication it requires to pull that off hasn't added as much as i actually think it detracts from it and that that's really the the issue for me it feels like the rest of the film is the rest of the film up to and including the script is completely in service of pulling that off and i don't think that it serves the story and the characters as well especially when given given the talents at the disposal of the film and i think like mark's example of the uh, the plating up scene is a is a superb one everything that isabel said is you know further emphasizing that really that's the strength of the film that's what it should be serving and i think some of the stuff that it's trying to do with the story and the interactions would be better served by a different structure because the other thing it does i mean yes it, it I'm, I'm sure it does get across the idea of working in a busy stressful kitchen frankly I, as somebody who's not worked in that environment there's still a lot that you can see here i mean it captures the rhythms of a dysfunctional workplace absolutely beautifully for me this idea you know the way people interact and the things that people put up with and the wrong food you know the um apportioning of blame for certain things that is incorrect but you can't deal with it because of the stress of the situation all of that sort of thing i think it i think it does it superbly but the problem is i think it could really lean into that which is its biggest strength if it didn't make this central aesthetic choice and i think technically it pulls it technically in terms of i'm even thinking like the sound design here i think it pulls it off very well i think it's done with a certain level done with a pretty high degree of skill i'm just not sure for the complete package of the film how much that actually adds to it and i do think it actually detracts to it so it, it's a film i got a lot out of but if you're going into it for the oh it's a single take and i want to be impressed by that yes you will be impressed by it but i think the film had the potential to impress in every other way more if it took a different approach than it does there yeah i mean i, I agree and disagree i think what you talked about with um politics in you know just a work environment i think this does an exceptional job on that and again does that in a way that works really really does explain the restaurant business why people are there you know how they interact with each other and maybe it culminates this all in one night and you're taking from what could be six you know six months of an experience but as someone who's had stress dreams around you know, around working in a restaurant like that. I don't think that that point of view sort of perspective isn't actually effective in actually sort of capturing that um, while I don't think a gimmick on, you know, on that is, is necessary. It does, I don't know who, I don't know the director's background, but it does seem, or the writer or the creatives, but it does seem like they understand this topic very well and i think that's come across in this film and you know it was relatively effective all around so bullying point is coming out on january 5th and uh yep we recommend watching it
so this is the time of year where we like to reflect on a year's worth of film um, in and out of the cinema streaming and um, and whatnot film festivals. Uh, we reviewed a lot of films this year. We saw a lot of films, a lot of great films actually. And um, I'd like to ask our group here uh, perhaps to pick, you know, one to two films that they would like to say, uh, yeah, is their favorite. Oh, one to two is tough, but- uh, Or five. I'll... Okay, five, five, maybe six. Um, okay, so I'll say the one of the first films I watched this year that I really loved was called Beginning by Deaku and Begashvili, and it's a film set in Georgia. It's about a woman who lives in a sort of Jehovah's Witness community that's undergoing persecution, and it has it's a brutal film, and I wouldn't go into it, um, you know, without acknowledging that. But it's got the most patient approach of any movie I've seen this year. It's very slow and very contemplative and has a scene where the main character sort of pretends to fall asleep but then actually possibly falls asleep on the forest floor while the sounds sort of just envelop her, which is one of the most beautiful individual scenes I've seen this year. Um, and the more I think about it, the more I think it's a kind of incredible feat because it's the filmmaker's first feature film and it's a kind of incredible thing for that. It's on movie and um, I wish I'd seen more discussion about it this year because I think it is incredible. Um, I, on second go, loved Jane Campion's Power of the Dog, which on first go I struggled with. Um, so I was very happy for that turnaround because that occasionally happens. I'm always pleased when it does. Um, I've mentioned this film before, which is um, David Osset's film Mayor, about the mayor of Ramallah in Palestine which, um, you know, as I said, I think I've mentioned it at least two times in the podcast before, so I'll just say I think it's wonderful to reiterate. Um, one of the best films I saw this year was a short film that was released finally. It's called America by Garrett Bradley. Um, it was released on Field of Vision's website last month, and um, I think it's a sort of amazing and visually the mo one of the most beautiful movies I've seen this year. It's a kind of alternative history of black American cinema, taking one of the earliest films in black American cinema history and extrapolating what could have been were, um, you know, were the American film industry not institutionally racist. Um, my, I think my second favourite, again, I think you've talked about it, is First Cow. Um, you had a long segment where you were all debating that. Um, I love First Cow. I think it's, I think it's absolutely wonderful. I'm sorry, Amanda. Um, and I think the best movie of the year for me is... Um, by Angela Shanalek, and it's called I Was at Home But. Uh, and I have no idea how to talk about this because it's an incredibly odd and precise movie. Um, but I'm thinking about the number of movies that came out this year that were all about grief and about how none of them really did it for me, um, whether it was Petit Mama or um, Drive My Car. They were all movies that were in ways about grief, but I just didn't buy into them as grief movies at all. Whereas this one I absolutely did buy into, especially in a year where I've been thinking about grief in both very local and very global terms. And this is a movie that just hit a spot in me that I haven't had hit in a in a better way this year. Um, and I, I love Channel X films generally, and I find that she's unbelievably precise and hard. And some people find cold, but I, I find her, her films actually, you know, there are pockets of feeling in them that I find undeniable. And if, if I can spot them, they... They just take over the film for me, and this is what happens with 
um, hours at home, but which definitely earns its comparisons to kind of Bresson and Stroupier just for the precision of the framing and the editing, but also just the the, the sonic and visual and um, kind of actorly beauty that goes on within it as well. Great. That was about six or seven. So yeah, <laughs> very good. No, all of them sound really good. And the ones I missed, I, I'd like to see specifically America. That sounds really, really like something I'd want, I'd really want to watch. Um, Isabel. Um, I thought this was a really, really good year. And especially Mark, you touching on grief. Like I really enjoyed the representation of grief in so many of these movies. So I, loved Petite Mama. I found that movie heartbreaking. I love Celine Sciamma, like she's one of my favorite directors. I adore the way that she sort of pushes boundaries and explores different issues of grief, you know, sexuality, gender. I just think that she's absolutely superb at that. And this, this particular representation I found quite special. I was, as a child, I went through a lot of grief and I found it quite moving. So that's definitely my number one. I adored Power of the Dog. I just found that a bizarre, shocking, beautifully shot. The landscapes were incredible. All the performances were weird. There was so much in it. I just I just keep wanting to return to that film over and over again. Um, I did love Come On, Come On. So that's definitely in my highlight reel now. And I loved um, Promising Young Woman. So Emerald Fennel's um, sort of movie, Promising Young Woman. I just thought that was such a great, exploration of female empowerment and coming out on and reclaiming you know your past and exploring how you can move forward and how you can't move forward and I like the play around with time there and the play around with revenge so I thought that was really well done and the other film that you touched on Mark which I also really really liked was Drive My Car so that one was based on um, Murakami's short story and I thought it was quite lovely on screen even though it was very very different to the actual short story in itself I liked that it was quite minimal and just showing a very realistic way of processing a situation so yeah and I, I'm gonna struggle here to be honest um I mean you know you know my dislike of like you know picking things as the top thing so you know take this as a you know favorites or or whatever but let's let let's not get into that one again I I think that the way I'm gonna struggle with this is I think there have been a lot of good films um in the past year or so but I think bigger than that is just the way the release schedule is just so completely screwed up I'm not really sure what so in some cases what films to include as films from this year and um what not to. I mean, like, some of the ones that jump out at me have already been mentioned. Like, First first Cow, I think, is up there for me. Um, I thought that was a... I thought that was a wonderful film. Uh, I enjoyed that really a huge amount. There, there's others where, you know... Some of them we've spoken about on the show. Some of them I've written about. Others I'm not. Um, you know, one that popped up at Sundance that I liked a huge amount was The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet, which I think we did on the show, and I, I really, I really like that. That keeps coming back to me. I think and one that I'm struggling with is definitely not a film which was has a production year of this year, but I'm I'm trying to remember if I saw it just before New Year or just after, and we did on the show was Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. That's stuck in my head, you know, quite quite a lot as well. And I think I think that sneaks just into this this year on that sort of basis. And I think those are all films where 
if you haven't had a chance to see them, go and seek them out, right? Because I think I think there's a lot to be gained from them. Some of the other ones are kind of like bigger ones that were floating around at the end of last year and finally came out. You know, something I talk about. You know, another round, The Sound of Metal. Like these are all films that I I enjoyed a huge amount. Um, one that I saw recently, which I think would probably be you know, floating around in this conversation for me is Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, which I was trying to see if we could get into the the, the show. Um, unfortunately, it just didn't work out that way. But I, I finally managed to see that. I finally came to a, a cinema near me, and I I thought that was superb. I think there's a lot of a lot of things going on in that that film, and it just it deserved. You know, regardless of what anybody thinks of it, I think it deserved more eyes on it. I think it's it, it, it's release here, from what I can see, was a bit of a non-event, really, as far as I'm concerned. And I don't think that's really fair on what was a a really good film. A film that I keep coming back to is Limbo, um, which, of course, came out earlier um, this year, Ben Chirac's film, which we looked at on the show, I think, for Glasgow Film Festival. And then it's, I think it's on movie now. Like that, that's another one that really stood out to me. So th- these are all films, and I back up a lot of the films that have been mentioned here, like Petit Maman is another one that I would probably um, put in there. So th- there's a lot of good films out there. I think really all I'd say is if you haven't watched any of the ones that have been mentioned, then go and do it. Um, but as a result of kind of like a slightly screwed up release schedule, my complete indecision and, you know, just anxiety that comes from nomin Like, I already know when this gets broadcast, I'm going to have forgotten at least two or three films and I'm going to absolutely kick myself. But yeah, these are all good things. Go watch them. <laughs> no, totally. And I can't think of all the films that I've seen as well, but I'm trying, I kind of looked back at what we reviewed and kind of thought a little bit about which ones really resonated with me and which ones didn't. And um, it's interesting that you picked that, Jim, but I agree, and this was Mark's suggestion, but Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, that was a film that actually really, speaking of boiling point, it just kind of, it it was different, and it was something that was new, and it made me feel like something I I resonated or experienced once, but also liked how, I just, I enjoyed it, I, I felt like I could, I really, I thought I took something away from that film as something I haven't seen before, and I really, really liked that. So thank you for bringing that to us. I also mentioned it a bit, Gagarin. I really liked that film as well. I thought that was a, that was first film for two filmmakers and I, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, is it my favorite? Not sure. Uh, I think when you guys were talking a lot about grief, I, I mean, I definitely liked Petit Mama, definitely would put that on my top list. But also I think a lot about like how fil- certain films felt like horror that weren't horror films and Sound of Metal for me was one of these films that was just very, very powerful in terms of the soundscape. And there was a lot of really great films that we talked about in terms of the soundscape. And I thought Sound of Metal was an excellent film. Um, And I would also actually throw out Promising Young Woman. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed Promising Young, young, Young Woman as well. But I will have to say, this is going to be very classic me. <laughs> I really enjoyed French Dispatch, like Richard Brody. <laughs> so I saw it twice, and um, I am a, obviously a Francophile, so you can't blame me. But really? I do think it was... <laughs> I do think that's, Anna that's, Wes that's Anderson fan. <laughs> Um, but I do think some of his most recent films I didn't like. And so I was, I was pleased to see that French Dispatch was, uh, at least for me, a little bit of a, yeah, a a change in pace for, for, um, 
for Wes Anderson. I also watched it a second time with a French person next to me and they laughed. So I thought, you know, well, if a Frank of Mile can laugh and enjoy it and also a proper French person, then it's, it's going somewhere. So I, I enjoyed it. Um, what I didn't like, my least favorite, I know I didn't ask for the least favorite, was Black Bear, but I just had to throw that out there. Cause... Oh, no. I, you're just trying to start a fight now. That's... <laughs> Definitely didn't like Black Bear. I also didn't like Black Bear. Not that we. Oh, I see now. Oh, I see now. You can um, get up with the the show when we actually reviewed it. So we've got the cavalry in. That's what's. I'll give you first cow. I'll give you first cow, but not Black Bear. Can I? Can I just echo one thing that you said there, Amanda? I just think it was such an incredible year for sound. Like I do think all these films were just showing an incredible use of sound. So I'm very intrigued for the Oscars next year. I think that's going to be an incredibly competitive award. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, except all the things that will be nominated for it will be blockbusters where you can't hear anything. Yeah, just yeah, saying. fair play. All right. I'm just thinking of the Grinch there, now. <laughs> we have multiple Grinches in the room. As soon as the words Oscars got mentioned, I knew Jim was going to do that. Of course, of course. Um, hi, we can me. wait a couple months before we go into this debate. Can we, though? I feel like it happens year-round. We can just ignore it this time. But you know you want to... Do- you know you're going to bring it up. You know you are. That's our favourites. Uh, I think they're all really great options. And we highly recommend you checking them out. So tis the season of holiday movies, and as I really hate them, usually, um, the ones that my mom makes me watch from the Hallmark Channel, I thought it would be fun to ask everyone their favorite holiday movie and their least favorite holiday movie, um, because there's some real winners out there, aren't there? And we have to watch them on a regular um, regular basis if our, yeah, our parents make us. Um, so I was going to go around and ask everybody what uh, what what they like, um, starting with maybe you, Isabel. Well, ho, 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 because I love Christmas. <laughs> um, but I do have a couple of Christmas traditions. So one of mine's always, despite how non-PC and inappropriate it is now, I always watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That's always a big staple for me. Um and Love Actually. I do adore Love oh. Actually. I pretty much just eat up Christmas movies, to be honest. I've had them on repeat for a while. But I would also like to shout out to... Um, I really enjoy Pottersville. That might be my favourite one, which stars Christina Hendricks and Michael Shannon. And I just think it's a bizarre as hell movie. I don't really understand why it exists. It makes no sense. It's a terrible movie, but terrible in the way that I love it. And the other thing I have to comment on that I've discovered recently, which is terrible and terrible in a way of, I don't think anyone should watch this, but maybe everyone also should watch it just so they can experience it. It's called Father Christmas is Back, which stars Liz Hurley. Not sure why she's in this. Kelsey Grammer. And also, um, hang on, I'm going to find the other person who's in it. Uh, John Cleese. So, just a round, round out cast of this, and it's all about, you know, inappropriate age relationships and a very, very wealthy family that no one really understands what any of them do. But anyway, it's Christmas, so it doesn't need to make sense. 
Wow. I'll pass on to you, Mark. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, I for for all my Grinch-like qualities, I have a long list of or a longer list of movies that I like, and then one which I really hate, and the one which I really hate is Pottersville. So I'm glad you got there first. <laughs> um, it's I have. <laughs> Again, like you, I have no idea why that movie exists. And a friend was watching it recently, and to my great shame, sent me a um, a screenshot of it, and I knew instantly what movie it was. And I feel absolutely sick to my stomach that that's the case. Just a single single frame, not an important one, but it was instant. It, I knew it because it was so overlit that it couldn't be anything else. Ah, yeah. I would I would say if your if your interests overlap with Michael Shannon, Christina Hendricks, Bigfoot, and someone being possibly a furry, those are four things which this film can definitely cater towards you. Uh, and Ian McShane, don't forget Ian, Ian McShane. Mc Ian McShane, Ron Perlman, it's it's oh Judy Greer, my God, what did they do to deserve that? Anyway, moving on from Portsville. Oh, anyway, so the good movies I have are, um, I used to watch a Charlie Brown's a Charlie Brown Christmas um, every Christmas day, but I had to stop because it was oh. getting too sad. It's a, it's 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 one of the most depressing movies I have ever seen or ever will see. Uh, the music from it is just minor keyed in a terrifying way, and I have had to stop watching it because it's just so emotionally devastating. Devastating, rather. Um, the good movies I have are Carol, obviously. Carol's wonderful, and I try and watch it at Christmas. Um, the Shopper in the Corner by Ernst Lubitsch, which is delightful and is an actual proper Christmas movie. And my, I always used to watch Meet Me in St. Louis on Christmas Day as well, just because it has a Christmas scene in it, but it's not a Christmas movie. It's, it takes place in multiple seasons. And I think the best Christmas movie is Eyes Wide Shut, and I will leave it there. Well, um, yeah, but have you ever seen The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, by any chance? Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just I was too sad after Charlie Brown Christmas. I'm not doing any more of this. Because The Great Pumpkin is, is also sad, but I, I, I really do. I really do like that one. That's my favorite of those. Um, I Will Raise You, Eyes Wide Shut. That was going to be one of my favorites, actually. Oh. Um, I, I, I very much like that. I also would say, we'll probably talk about this in a couple months, but... Um, you know, films I like, but I really like Whit Stillman films, and I consider Metropolitan to be an exceptional Christmas film as well. If I wanted to throw it in the rom-com zone, I do love A Holiday, because Cameron Diaz rom-coms are some of my faves. So, like, I, you know, I get, I get a kick out of that one if I have to go. It's bad, but I'll watch it. Um, and for some reason, Devilish Prada is always on, on Christmas, so it's not a Christmas movie, but the Paris scene is, like, Christmas for me. So I'll go with that. I hate Love Actually more, n almost as much as I hate Super Size Me. It's not about love, and it's a lot of passive women, and I can't stand that film. So that is my least favorite by far. Um, I would say that there's a scene in Better Off Dead, probably on PC. I have not seen that film in a really long time, but I really like 80s um, films and All About Christmas, and that's one maybe one of my favorite scenes of American Christmas, um, better off dead scenes of Christmas there. So those are, those are my roundup. So Jim. Well, after all that high conflict and drama, 
I think it, it, it might. I, honestly, you know, sorry, I, I, I really struggled with this. I, I, it was when I looked, when I started thinking about like Christmas films, I realized that a lot of like Chris. I, I mean, first of all, without getting into a very boring debate about precisely what a Christmas film is, I realized that a lot of films that are like set at Christmas or set around Christmas. I'm not really all that keen on any of them. I, I, I struggled to come up with many of them. I mean, the one, the, the only ones that I can remember. I think seeing on TV when I was growing up that have stuck in my head are probably the, the Shop Around the Corner that Mark has already mentioned and Miracle on 34th Street, right? And th- those are really the only things that kind of stick in, my, <clears throat> stick in my head in that category. Beyond that, I think I kind of associate... I kind of associate Christmas with like when I f- first saw a lot of these kind of blockbusters that came out like before I was born or before I was like old enough to really be going to the, the, the cinema and you know, them being on TV. So, I mean, like, Back to the Future is obviously not a Christmas film, but that kind of sticks to my head because I, I remember seeing it on TV at Christmas. You know, I saw Jurassic Park in a cinema when I was a kid, but after that, really, the first time I saw it was when it was on terrestrial TV as a kid. So, I kind of struggle with things that are Christmas films. In terms, of the only one that's actually a Christmas film, which I remember seeing every year, and I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a good film, but for, it is one that I kind of get just a bit of weird joy out of. Is frankly Jingle All the Way, the Schwarzenegger thing. I mean, it's nonsense. <laughs> it is nonsense. But for some reason, it's just something that seems to be, that seems to be on every year. And I remember watching it with my family. I remember watching it on TV. And for some reason, it just it, it really sticks in my head. In terms of terrible Christmas films, or my least favorite Christmas film, I mean, like, where do you want to start? I mean, like some of the like some of these, you know. I mean, really, honest to God, I don't think I've subjected myself to enough of them to really pick one out. I mean, this is where, you know, I try to be. I give all films a chance. I don't give all films a chance. A Castle for Christmas, for instance, I'm not giving that a chance. I had <laughs> I had I had one moment of weakness where there was like basically nothing, you know, had a gap for it, and I said, right, okay, if we're gonna watch it, watch it now, or I'm never gonna watch it ever. And we didn't. So that is consigned to the dustbin of history and I will never watch it. <laughs> and you've um, never seen it. Because that's why we that's why I want to do this challenge. <laughs> no, I've not I've not watched it. I told you I had a moment of weakness where I was like, right, fine. Put put it on on the proviso that I don't have to be quiet and respectful for this film throughout. Um but we didn't put it on, so as far as I'm concerned, it just it just disappears into like I I, I was it Pottersville? I have not seen this film. And based upon the descriptions here, I have no intention of seeing. Well, I think we so, have two. Yeah, no. we have two for our challenge projects next year that I'm very keen to consider. Just I, I will go jump in the fourth if you do that. <laughs> okay, I, I feel I need to put a proviso out there, a blanket statement, just saying these are not good films. I appreciate no. they're not, but that's what I think is the spirit of Christmas: watching a terrible movie. And as someone who has seen A Castle for Christmas, <laughs> I can wholly confirm it is terrible. Well, there are terrible films that are worth watching, and there are terrible yeah. films that you just can't get through. Like I try, I am a, a apart from I'm I'm admittedly a Real Housewives fan. I love reality television. I did try to watch Housewives of the North Pole that Peacock has put out and I you know it has a lot of them in it and I could not get through 15 minutes of it even though I would watch anything Housewives based. I mean forgive so, me if I'm not shocked <laughs> it really yeah it's it's not it's not 
these Hallmark kind of very, I mean, why I probably picked Metropolitan Eyes Wide Shut is like they're they're the opposite of these kind of, yeah, uh, wholesome, yeah, stories about, uh, yeah, Christmas cookies and I don't know, like, you know, North Pole. I forgot to mention one other terrible movie that I also enjoy around this time of year being A Family Man, The Family Man with Nicolas Cage and Taylioni. Where for some reason I consider that a Christmas movie because it is set at Christmas time. And I also think that is a very enjoyable, terrible movie to watch. I mean, I am also like scheduling to watch Single All The Way. So I will <laughs> see if I can't join in this conversation of terrible movies that are also Christmas. <laughs> Christmassy, at the very least. I will also I'll put in a bit of balance and say that um, another movie that people could watch if they want a vision of a good Christmas as opposed to a terrible one. Um, it's not a Christmas movie, but it's one that just has the most perfect vision of what Christmas should be like. It's a kind of luxurious Christmas, is um, Fanny and Alexander um, has the best Christmas I've ever seen in a movie. It's just like, it's perfect. It's a kind of fantasy, which is then punished in the later part of the movie, but it's it's incredible if you wanted a, a vision of the like idyllic Christmas. Well, there's a whole host of really good films and not so good films, all of which you could enjoy this Christmas if you so feel the jolliness that Isabel does and less the Grinchness <laughs> that Mark and Jim do. And I don't know where I stand, somewhere in between, but I'm happy this year is near over and we're <laughs> able to have some turkey or whatever you enjoy during this holiday season so a huge happy holidays a huge nice end to this year and see you in the next year in january let's get through it 2021 <laughs> i mean it seems pretty appropriate to be honest <laughs> <laughs>